0: During particularly tough times in life and ministry, I often find solace in a good biography. Does anybody else like to read biographies? Am I the only nerd in this room that likes biographies? Okay. Especially in these times of difficulty, a biography about a faithful missionary or pastor. When miserable days hit, there's something about reading about somebody else's misery that makes you feel good, right? Just something about picking up this biography and finding out how these people stayed faithful in times of difficulty I couldn't even begin to imagine. Burying loved ones and struggling with cannibals even, and all these different things that they went through. Take Charles Spurgeon as an example. It's a well-known fact that Spurgeon struggled with chronic depression. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, the man who God used to open up the eyes of thousands, the seasoned pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, of all people to struggle with chronic depression, I would not have guessed that Spurgeon's name would have been on the list. He once was so depressed that he admitted to his congregation, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. Some of you know what that's like, right? To just cry and not know why you're crying? To be so sunken down and sad? And yet, Spurgeon also modeled what it meant to trust God in the midst of such dark days. In another sermon, in which he once again talked about his depression, he reveled in his hope. He talked about his dark days, but then he said, the scourging of the vessel has fitted it for the master's use. Fasting gives appetite for the banquet. The low valley leads to the towering mountain. Death prepares for victory. The mariners go down to the depths, but the next wave makes them mount to heaven. You can probably imagine how comforting it is to read that someone else, someone who deeply loved God and served him well, struggled with what he called causeless depression, no root or reason, and yet who also learned to look for God's hidden hand in the midst of it. Reading about God's work in Spurgeon's dark day has helped many a pastor, many a friends. I've, I've had many co-ministers who have told me just how sweet it is to read about God's redemptive work, even when they struggle with depression, as God worked in Spurgeon's days. And it's not just depression, it's lots of other things in life. When in need to find resolve to keep pressing on through a difficult challenge, there's no better biography than John G. Patton's. If you're feeling small and helpless, just pick up Amy Carmichael's biography or Gladys Allward's biography and see what God can do with seemingly insignificant people. If you are struggling with the thoughts of what could have been, then David Brainerd's surely there to help you. His biography is filled with lament about what could have been, and yet what is. The point is this that in running to the records of God's past redemption in the lives of those who've gone before us can inspire us to see his redemptive albeit sometimes hidden movements in our own lifetime this is why we study ruth ruth is a biography about someone who has had a very difficult life and is going through and had gone through an amazing uh, moment of suffering and yet God works in the midst of even that. It's in the, in the life of this ancient Moabite widow that God reminds us that he can bring about beauty through our present pain and sorrow. That not even your depression, not even your loss, not even your mourning, not even your fear is wasted in his redemptive purposes. All of it coming together in your brokenness to make this amazing, beautiful mosaic where the chipped pieces fall right into place where God wants them. Sure, his sovereign purposes may be indiscernible to us at the moment, but like Ruth and Naomi, we can trust that one day his redemption will be put on full display because of our suffering. You see how good news that is? You may not be in suffering at the moment. Maybe suffering was something you dealt with in the past, and it's just the lingering pain. But suffering applies to everyone. And it's the good news that God is sovereign even over that brokenness, even over that hurt, even over that pain, that God can bring about something beautiful and redemptive even in that. Now, if you're new with us today, this is technically our first Sunday in Ruth. We did a big overview sermon last Sunday where we showed how the redemptive themes in Ruth and Esther kind of come together. Um, But today, and for the rest of the the few weeks, we're going to look at Ruth explicitly, and then we'll go to Esther. So as we open the book of Ruth, the narrator sets the backdrop. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, you may be tempted just to pass over that as just uh, just kind of like once upon a time. That's not just a once upon a time statement. There's a lot of truth, a lot of background that's packed in that little bitty statement. First, the days when the judges ruled refers to a time of immense spiritual and moral chaos in the promised land. Incredible chaos. If you've read the book of Judges then you might recall that this was a time when Israel was abandoning their God Yahweh in mass and chasing after the gods of the surrounding nations. If you've read Judges 2, then you know about the cycle in which Israel would break the covenant, do evil. God would discipline them, send invaders into the land, oppressors, who would drive them back to him. They would cry out in pain. God would have mercy, send a deliverer, rescue them, and then Israel would return back but become evil, more evil than they were in the first place. And it's this judges cycle that's going on in the days of the judges, just getting worse and worse and worse. You uh, probably have, re- remember back your felt Feltboard felt uh, Sunday school class with Gideon and stuff? What you don't often learn in a Feltboard Sunday school class is that Gideon, after delivering Israel with his 300 men, goes on to build an ephod that becomes an idol. Leads the entire nation back to idolatry himself. You get people like Jephthah, who is a fool. Samson, who is a womanizer. Falling in love with whoever was around him. There's even a story in Judges 19 that implicitly compares Israel with Sodom and Gomorrah. If you read Judges 19 alongside Genesis 19, you find the exact same language. Israel has come, become as bad as Sodom. Now, why do I tell you that? Well, it's because in these days when there's no king and everyone's doing right in their own eyes, that Ruth comes to Bethlehem. You know, I think sometimes we pass over that and we fail to see that this isn't the ideal time for redemption. This 400-year span in which Judah and Israel is Fleeing from God, hating God, committing idolatry, doing atrocious acts, even so far as a Levite having a concubine, and then chopping her up in pieces. I mean, that is is legit depravity. That happened near Bethlehem. I just... I stopped for a moment. Even this week, I've read Ruth. I've written a dissertation on Ruth. And it's still just never... Those first words, in the days when the judges ruled. In other words, here's the dung heap that this flower is going to grow in. My friends, you may think that God could never work out redemption in the days that you live in. He's worked out redemption in days that were far worse. This first sentence basically says this. This is the story of how God's redemption worked in even the darkest of times. The implicit historical background, a time of sin and depravity, spiritual confusion, societal upheaval, moral mayhem, political corruption, and terrorist attacks. As you think of the raids and the wars that they endured, sounds pretty close to our own day, day, don't you think? I mean, terrorist attacks, political upheaval, uh, political corruption, moral mayhem, my friends, we live in days in similar dung heaps, and God will bring about similar flowers because he is sovereign even over the dung heap. He is sovereign over the wreck that we make. He is sovereign over the days when people are rejecting him. Now, that all may sound bad, right? So days of the judges is bad, right? So that that just tells it bad start, bad beginning, bad historical background. But it gets worse than that, the author tells us that in addition to the societal chaos, the moral chaos, the religious chaos that is happening in Israel, there's also a famine in the land. Now it's apparently bad enough that, that, it's a bad enough famine that we're not talking about, you know, Texas asking you to pull back on watering your lawn a little bit. We're talking about a famine, bad enough to drive Elimelech and his family out of the land. Now, there's a subtle irony in this because Bethlehem means the house of bread. And in this case, the bread basket's empty. Why? Hadn't God promised his people that he would give them peace and abundance in the land? Why is the promised land, and this is a question we should be asking at this moment as we approach Ruth, why is the promised land in such a pitiful state and famished, broken? In the Old Testament, famine is oftentimes a consequence of covenant infidelity. God had told his people outright in Deuteronomy 28, if you reject me and you serve the other gods, I will bring drought and blight on your land. If you want life without me, I will give you a life without me. I bring the rain, I bring the harvest. If you reject me, you will have no rain and you will have no harvest. Your heavens will become like bronze and the earth will become like iron, and that is what has happened in Bethlehem. So in just the first sense, let's just stack it up. Crazy chaos outside. Israel's far from God, and God's retaliating now in judgment and d- discipline. Bad, bad, bad. And then you add on top of that, Elimelech's fateful decision to leave the promised land. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. Elimelech's decision to leave is interesting because his name means God is king. Eli, Eli, God, Melech, king. So God is king, but we see him living in a way that is far from that truth. Does he ever ask God if he should leave the land? Does he turn to God in faith and look for God for provision? No, he he sets the, the, the drumbeat to his own life. He's the one that makes his own decisions. There's nowhere in the Old Testament text that you would ever see a permission for God's people to leave the promised land during times of discipline and judgment. They weren't supposed to flee to the other nations. They were supposed to turn to God. The whole reason that God sent famines and sent raiders and sent hardships is to drive them back to him. As Hosea says, he would put up these thorn bushes in the middle of the the way so that they would run back instead of keeping running forward into their idolatry. But Eli Melech basically jumped over the thorn bush to go to a better, greener pasture in Moab. They weren't supposed to do that. And to run to Moab, of all places, for relief, was an especially dangerous thing for a Hebrew to do. If you remember your biblical history, you know that was the Moabites who had turned Israel away from God at bel Peor, Right? literally bringing out the Moabite women to dance seductively in front of the men and to draw them into covenant idolatry and infidelity right there, leading to the mass slaughter of thousands of Hebrews because of their sin. So just just to put it plain and simple, Elimelech and his family are in terrible societal time. They're in the middle of a famine, and now they're playing with fire. Now they're playing with fire. They make foolish decisions on top of doing these incredibly de- and, and top of living these de- incredibly depraved times. Well, you know how the story goes. Elimelech dies in Moab, outside of the Promised Land. And then his sons, Malon and Kilion, take Moabite women as their wives, which, to, to not cut it any differently for you, was a sin. They weren't supposed to do that. De- Deuteronomy 23 three through seven, tells them not to marry the women of the nations because the women of the nations would draw them away. And there's no indication at this point that Ruth or Orpah had turned away from their Moabite gods. In fact, there's more indication that they were still actively in their idolatry. And we'll see that here in just a minute. They haven't yet turned from gods to God. They haven't yet left Moabite religion for Yahwehism. They haven't gone from uh, lack of faith to faith yet. You see, it wasn't an interracial prohibition. It wasn't that God didn't want them interracially marrying. That had nothing to do with it. There's plenty of texts in the Old Testament where God celebrates, God blesses unions with Canaanite women. For example, Tamar and Rahab would be one example, okay? Rahab is brought into the people of God. What the prohibition is against is an interfaith marriage. Hebrew monotheistic Israelites were simply not to marry pagan, multiple, God, multiple God-worshipping women, because it would draw them away, as it did with Solomon, for example. Solomon brought all of his wives, and he had his heart drawn astray. So why do I tell you all this? This seems like way too much background, doesn't it, for a sermon? You, you would think maybe you'd hear this in the seminary class. Here's why. Societal depravity and chaos, famine, and then add on top of it, sin. It's almost as if the narrator is pouring water on the altar, just like Elijah did right before the fire came down and swallowed it all up. He wants you to say, you think it was bad? It was bad, and then it was worse, and then it got worse, and then God's people began sinning and running away, and oh, by the way, it's in the midst of this water-soaked, sin-soaked, depraved time that God's going to burn a big fire of redemption. You think your days are bad and that God can't work redemption in your days. The author of Ruth goes, hello, do you know our backdrop? Do you know where we come from? Do you know that Bethlehem's right by Gibeah, where that uh, Levite's concubine was chopped in pieces? Do you know that Bethlehem sits in the middle of where all the idolatry and the problems were going? Do you know that Elimelech was living as his own king and sinning, and yet even in all of this, God supersedes and sovereignly governs over it all to bring about his purposes. My friend, whether it's society, whether it's covenant judgment, or whether it's our own sin, nothing stops the plan of God. I just, I just am like, man, I, I, I find myself on a Monday. One of my prayers on, uh, typical prayers on Mondays, God, just don't let me screw this week up. Does anybody else pray that? Just don't let me mess it up. Sometimes as a Christian, I just need to hear the good news. Yeah, try not to screw it up. But at the same time, remember that even if you did, you can't screw it up because he is God and sovereign over that doesn't mean that you just release your hands and say, well, it doesn't matter what I do then. No, you don't do that. We want God to work because of us, not in spite of us. But let me tell you, he will work in spite of you. If he must, he will not be thwarted in his plan. He is God. And even in the worst of times, he is still sovereign king. We cannot change that. So that's the backdrop of the book of Ruth. So here we have Naomi, no husband, no sons, and no gr- grandchildren. Over those 10 years of marriage, Malon and Chilion had no kids with their wives, and so she's left alone. Now, As I mentioned last week, to live as a widow in, a, in the ancient world was a particularly vulnerable lifestyle, especially when there's no other members in the family to care for you. If you had sons, you might make it through. If you had grandchildren, you might make it through. But having no family at all means you're left to yourself. There's no social system there to help provide. Nobody's kind of pitching in. I mean, it's just, it's up to her. Given Naomi's age, which we know that she was pretty advanced in age, she was old. She says, I'm too old for a husband. This virtually means that from her vantage point, her life is over. Her life is over. My friends, there's few of us that have felt this way, but, but some of us have, I'm sure. Have you ever gotten to a moment where the suffering was just so bad, so bad, that you felt as if the only release you'd have is death? Oh my goodness. I've pastored a lot of different people uh, through their, on their road leading to death. And I've seen people being in such credible pain that they look forward to death. That's where Naomi sits at this moment. That it's just so bad. There's nothing for her. No family, graves in Moab, nothing to, nothing to have. She has no future. And the only thing that will release her from it is death. Can you just feel that for a moment? Just step into Naomi's shoes and feel the weight of what that would have been like. Just to think that there's nothing left for you.
1: And the pain that would have brought.
0: There's a small relief that comes in the text. As God intervenes for his people, he ends the famine in Judah. The breadbasket of Bethlehem that was empty is now full again. And so Naomi reasons that maybe she can squeeze out a miserable existence in Bethlehem, eating from the crumbs of other people's uh, love, grace. Maybe. So she decides to return. Now chapter 1 tells us that both her daughters-in-law accompany her, at least initially. They're both ready to go with her. Orpah comes along for some of the journey. We don't know how long they went, we don't know if they got right to the border of Judah. We don't, know, we don't know how far they went. All we know is that they're all going together at one moment. But somewhere along the way, Naomi decides that it's better to send her daughters back home, send her daughters-in-law back home. Now, I, a lot of people look at Naomi in this text and they, they comment how selfish she was. I don't really think she was being selfish. I think in all of her grief and sorrow and misery, she really is thinking about what's best for these daughters-in-law. Now, yes, she's thinking from a human perspective, and she's wrong about what she, what she says. In the end, the whole book of Ruth ends up proving that she was off base, that her fears were not legit. But at least at the moment, she is thinking what's best for her daughters-in-law. What would be the use in them coming to live as widows in Judah? Perhaps she's thinking about Orpah's and Ruth's slim chances of marrying an Israelite. I mean, what tribal member would want to marry a Moabite widow who had no dowry, no land, no prospect of enriching the man? Whoever marries these two Moabite widows not only goes against the grain of his own society, but he does so at a great cost to himself, Out of sheer benevolence, no societal gain, No economic gain. Who in the world would ever do that? It would be better for them in Moab. Add to this the fact that there's this ancient belief that if you left your homeland, your country, you were leaving the protection of your gods. In those days, gods had their jurisdictions or territories, right? So if we lived in those days, we'd have gods of Ovilla, gods of Ellis County, gods of Texas, some of you do have gods of Texas, actually, so be careful in that. Um, gods of America, and then, and then it would go on. But if you went to China, for example, you stepped out of the jurisdiction of the gods of Texas. They can't help you in China, right? So they, they believe that. that, that if you left your homeland, you're separating yourself out from the good and kind, gracious provision of your own gods. And there's some indication that Naomi believed this. Remember, she's a product of her generation. Who, what were the people and judges like? They, it wasn't that they completely rejected Yahweh, though they did spiritually. They just put Yahweh on the shelf with the other gods. He was just as much a territorial, tribal god as all the rest. And Yahweh's goal is to prove to them that he's not a god among the gods. He's God over the gods. He's king of kings, lord of lords. And there is no other god besides him. So, so that's the challenge is everybody's kind of put Yahweh on the shelf here. So Naomi's going back to her homeland, but she doesn't want Orpah and Ruth to leave their gods. She even says as much when after Orpah leaves, she tells Ruth, go back with your sister-in-law, who's returned to her people and her gods. That's from the mouth of Naomi, a Hebrew. In verse 15, chapter 1, she is sending or she is legitimately trying to send them back into the protection of the Moabite gods. Why should they risk everything for her? Why should she drag her daughters in law down with her? They have their whole lives in front of them. Why should she make them risk leaving their gods and their future husbands and Moab and to come and care and, and provide for her? She's thinking very pragmatically at this moment. That the best thing to do is just to send them home, set them free. To go about their lives and leave her to die on her own. And I think you can, almost, you can almost imagine the tears in Naomi's eyes as she pleads with Orpah and Ruth. Can you imagine? These are the only two friends you have left in the world. These are the only two reminders you have of the family you once had. And you're going to tell them
1: for their own good to leave you.
0: Go. Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Have to be the most painful, painful command in all the Bible.
1: Go. Leave me alone.
0: And initially, both Orpah and Ruth put up a resistance, but Naomi's logic from a human standpoint, my friends, if, if we lived in the ancient world and we were reading this text, Naomi's logic is impeccable. She's absolutely right. The wisest course of action is for each of these daughters to return home to Moab, or so it seems, from a human vantage point. So she finally keeps pressing on, turn back my daughter's, Now, Naomi's referring to this ancient practice of leveret marriage, right? In which a man would marry his brother's widow so that his brother's line and his name wouldn't be extinguished out of history. So it, they did that. That was, the, that was the social system of making sure widows were cared for. If a man died, his brother would step up into his, his unmarried brother at that, would step up into his place to care for the widow and carry on the line and the name. It was an obligation that they must do. But in this case, there are no, are no brothers. Both sons are dead. In her, in her mind, there's no more families to take care of them. No more family members who can step into the role. And not only that, it's laughable to think that any kind of solution can come from Naomi. She, she virtually mocks them and says, even if this very night I had a husband and have kids, you're really going to wait for them to grow up, for them to become your lever at redeemers. No, you're not. Go home. Be smart. Go find hope. In a Moabite husband. Again, I can't fault her logic here. Would I have recommended anything different? I'm not sure I would have. I, I hope I might have had the faith to say, you know what, God will work it out. But I know myself all too well that there's been many times that that has not been my faith. That I've leaned on pragmatism, leaned on logic so much, that it just seemed like this was the smartest course of action. This was the smartest thing to do. Well, Orpah listens. Her initial opposition's overcome, and she returns home and to her gods, and that's the last we hear of her in the book of Ruth. Ruth, on the other hand, clings to Naomi. She will not be persuaded. This is very strange. Again, Naomi's logic is impeccable. Her faith is flawed. Impeccable logic doesn't mean good faith. In fact, sometimes it's our impeccable logic that keeps us to see what God is doing. Ruth has terrible logic, and what she does is illogical. Some might even say societally stupid. And yet she has eyes to see what others cannot. She has the faith to see what others cannot. What even her Hebrew mother-in-law cannot. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Now listen to this. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. She even calls out a curse on herself. If I don't make good on this promise, may the Lord do so to me and also more, if anything but death parts me from you. We'll examine her statement in just a moment when we come back to it. For now, it's enough to say that Naomi's strapped now with a daughter-in-law, how do, you, how do you, with the burden of caring for a daughter-in-law, and she has nothing. So you can just imagine Ruth's clinging, and Naomi's just dragging, and Ruth's dragging on the ground, hanging on to her ankles. And now Naomi has to roll her eyes and say, Vine, get up. You're embarrassing us. We've got to go back to Judah then, right? So she finally relents, and she goes... What she doesn't know, however, is the daughter that she feels like she's dragging to Judah is actually going to be the daughter-in-law that's going to carry her to redemption. At the beginning, she just has Ruth the Moabite, the widow, as a daughter-in-law. In other words, nothing. And what she doesn't realize is by the end of the narrative, even the neighborhood women say, yeah, Ruth is more to you than seven sons. She doesn't realize how much of a gift God has given her in this Moabite. My friends, we are so illogical sometimes that in our lack of faith, we cannot see a gift when it's staring us in the face. We think we're empty-handed. We think we have nothing. And yet here's Ruth clinging to Naomi, literally someone who is better than seven sons, the perfect number in the Old Testament. In other words, if Naomi had the perfect family outcome, Ruth is better than that. And she doesn't recognize it. She unwillingly drags this gift of God back to Judah, not knowing that it is this very woman that she doesn't want to come with her who will end up redeeming her life and restoring her. Naomi finally relents, knowing that there's nothing she can say, knowing that she cannot send Ruth home. And the two travel together to Bethlehem where the town's women recognize Naomi. They say, is this Naomi? It's probably worth mentioning at this point, Hebrew names have meaning, right? So Elimelech means God is king. Malon Kilion means sickly and fading. So their names are kind of significant there. Naomi's name means pleasant one or pleasure, right? So hopefully that little bit of a background, a little Hebrew backdrop there, will help you understand uh, her response to the woman. She says, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty or empty-handed. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? In other words, why do you call me the pleasant one when there is no more pleasure in my life? Instead, call me the bitter one, because God hates me. We just kind of feel that grief, don't we? It's just the grief that you don't just read, you feel. Just the heartache of, of this woman crying out. Even, even a name change. She doesn't even want to be known as what her name actually is, the, the, the pleasant one or the, the one who has pleasure. She, there's no They call her Mara. She, even, see, she sees her whole life, and at the root of it all is just bitterness because God hates her, is what she thinks. Or God has turned away from her. He is the one that brought this calamity upon her. Now, I got to say this. On the one hand, Naomi is absolutely correct in saying that God has allowed these things to happen. Do you understand that? Naomi's not completely inaccurate in what she's saying. On the other hand, she does not yet see why it's good news that God is the one who has done it. She sees it completely as bad news. God has brought bitterness into my life. The Lord Almighty has brought calamity upon me, but what she doesn't see is that our good God works even in bad times, bitter times, to bring about good things. God doesn't leave things undone for his people. He completes the process from bad to good, from bitterness to sweetness, and even at this moment, she's tasting bitterness, and she doesn't realize that soon that bitterness will give way to sweetness. She's right. The Lord allowed it. My friends, as a pastor, it is so tough when someone says, why would God let this happen? In other cases, I've seen suffering so bad that somebody would say, why did God do this to me? In the midst of our suffering, it's easy to go there, isn't it? Why didn't God stop it? Or why is God doing it? My friends, I I can't lie to people. Did God allow the tumor to come? Yeah, if he's a sovereign God, he could have stopped it, and yet he didn't. Why did God allow the child to die? If we say that he didn't allow it, then we say he's not sovereign. You see the, you see the rock in the hard place there? Why didn't God stop the molestation from happening? Why didn't God intervene when I was losing my job? We're absolutely right that God is sovereign and whatever comes to us passes through his sovereign hand. doesn't mean that he makes people sin. He doesn't. But he does allow things to happen in our lives. Now, where we would go one step further is if we can bring ourselves to trust that every time something bitter sovereignly comes to us, that it's because of a good and sovereign purpose. That's the hard part, to know that God has allowed the bitterness to come
1: so that he can highlight the sweetness, so
0: that he can highlight the sweetness. It's just amazing. Here's the bitter cup of coffee, and then here's the coffee with cream. God allows it to happen so that you can taste the sweetness afterwards. So at this moment in her bitterness. She only sees the bitterness, can't discern the sweetness. She only sees the darkness and cannot yet fathom the light that redemption will bring. You may be in that moment at this moment. You may be in a similar season. For those who have suffered, it's easy to sympathize with their grief. Wives who have watched their husbands struggle with their last breath, Mothers who have endured yet another miscarriage. Men who have come to see the bitter truth of what their secret sins have done to their families. Young couples who wonder where, how they are going to pay the bills after another downsizing. Single moms who fear their children's future. Cancer patients uh, who wait for the doctor to tell them whether the tumor is shrinking or growing. Husbands who are trying to process their wife's betrayal. Similar moments in darkness. And yet it takes the faith to remember that you may sit in darkness right now, but as the old reformers used to say, post inibris lux, after darkness comes light. Do we have that faith that in the midst of the darkness, we know that darkness is darkest before the dawn? So now let's reread Ruth 1. This won't take us long. We've, We've established the backdrop, bad days, Right? But now let's read, we've seen the darkness, now let's read with an eye open looking for the rays of light. Because they're there, you just might not have seen them. Bad days, dark days, but days in which God's light is still shining. If you look a little closer to the narrative, there are clear indications that God is doing something redemptive, even in Ruth chapter 1. Let's take a moment, rewind and look. When I told you that famines could be God's judgment for covenants and infidelity, that's absolutely true. And I think that's how we should read about the famine in Ruth chapter 1, that Israel has disobeyed God, they live in the days of the judges, they are chasing after idolatry, and the consequence of that is famine. However, God uses famine for other purposes as well. If you go back to Genesis, God used the famine to drive Jacob and his sons to Egypt. No indication at all that that was judgment, just God's way of moving things along, right? So while famine might be judgment, they also are tools in his hands to move along his redemptive purposes. You see, sometimes we like to narrow it down. Why was there a famine? Well, to simply say that it was judgment from God is true, but not accurate enough. There may be a million and one things God is doing. And to simply say that there's one is not enough. God maybe has sent this famine to move Elimelech to, to Moab just for the purpose of bringing Ruth out so that Ruth would meet Boaz, and then Boaz and Ruth together would have Obed, who then would have Jesse, who then would have David, who would then establish a dynastic kingdom from whom and over whom Christ would rule. It's Mind-blowing. Famine can be judgment, and yet also God's redemptive way of bringing things up to speed, moving things forward. He does other things like that. It's interesting. If you, if you read, in, read the Old Testament, he, he does this all the time. In 2 Samuel, for example, you know the story when David foolishly, sinfully started counting all of his armies, his fighting men. In other words, he, was, he had a pride built up, and he wanted to see how big his kingdom was. Clear sin. In in one text, uh, it says that Satan incited him to do it. And in another text, it says that God led him to do it. Well, which one? Well, God allows the temptation to come from Satan. Why? Well, when the census comes, when David does the census, and he starts braggadociously talking about how big his kingdom is, God sends a pestilence to cut the numbers down to size and to de-swell David's big head. Thousands die through a pestilence. David realizes that the only way that the pestilence will end is if he makes atonement. In in Second Samuel, he sees the angel of the Lord, the death angel, coming to slay thousands of people. So he runs and he purchases the threshing floor of Aruna and sacrifices an atoning lamb on it. That's interesting. Because it's that very same threshing floor of Aruna that David purchased because of his sin that God had allowed to happen and brought about a pestilence that Solomon builds the foundation of the temple upon. Builds the foundation of the temple on the threshing floor of Aruna, The very same spot that David is powerfully proclaiming that death is turned back by atonement. The very same place that eventually the perfect Lamb of God would be led into this temple to be tried under the Sanhedrin and reminding everyone that death is turned back by atonement. Does anybody else just get their mind blown about these things? I mean, David sleeps with Bathsheba, an illicit relationship, murders her husband. His child dies in the process. Absalom rebels as a consequence. And yet it's from their marriage with Bathsheba that Solomon comes. Over and over and over. God uses seemingly bad things to move his plan along. In Acts 2, the Christians are getting a little too comfortable in Jerusalem. So he allows Stephen to be stoned. Sometimes my mind works faster than my mouth. <laughs> Stephen gets stoned, and what's the outcome? All the Christians scatter. Well, why would that be? Well, because Jesus said it was his plan for the Christians to go to Samaria and to the nations and to the end of the earth. They can't do that if they're comfortable in Jerusalem. God can use famine. God can use pestilence. God can use pandemics. God can use persecution to move his plan along. Have you ever just basked in the glory of that? That there is not one daggum bad thing that thwarts God's sovereign redemptive purpose from moving along. And if it happens, he's moving. Certainly the case in Ruth. Elimelech's foolish decision to flee as foolish as it was, his son's sinful decision to marry idol-worshipping Moabite women, as sinful as that was, still, still moves God's promises along. What a sovereign God. To think that a famine would drive Lamelech to Moab, that it's there, that Malon meets Ruth, he dies, she comes back with Naomi, and from this Cute meet, meet cute, whatever you call that. Where the sovereign serendipity, where Boaz and Ruth just happen to meet each other. And it's from there that our glorious Savior comes. And from that line. And that God works all these moving pieces in a way that we just stand back and see His manifold wisdom. Every miscarriage. Every miscarriage that God sovereignly allows. Redemptively moves his purposes forward. Every sin that you see rampant in our society isn't stopping the sovereign hand of God. It doesn't mean he's leading people to sin, but it does mean that God will not be defeated by it. Even sin, even societal upheaval, even political turmoil, even COVID 19 marches God's plan further and closer to fruition when you get to sit at the table with the nations in the presence of Jesus. Why don't we bask in the glory of that? We act like the pandemic has handcuffed our God. We find another glimpse of light in verse 7. It says this Then she arose with her daughters in law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard that the fields of Moab, in the, in the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. It's a small, subtle thing but the Lord visited means that the Lord intervened. In other words, God in all of his grace and mercy stops the covenant judgment and gives food. God in his long suffering, did did Israel deserve to be in a famine at this moment? Well, if they lived in the days of the judges, then the answer is obviously what? Yes. Did they all deserve to starve to death because they rejected God and worshiped idols? The obvious answer is Yes, and yet God, in all of his long suffering and mercy and grace, says, I'll stop it. He intervenes and gives food. We have a God whose heart gushes with mercy. Yes, he's a God of justice. Yes, he's a God of holiness, but he's also the God of mercy. And if he would intervene in the lives of his people who deserve to starve, then he will intervene in the lives of poor widows like Naomi and Ruth. He will intervene again. By the end of the narrative, we see the outcome of God's intervention. God is silent through the whole text. God never speaks in the book of Ruth. There's only two places that we see God's direct action, you know, when he intervenes in Judah and when he opens Ruth's womb and allows her to have a baby. But the whole event, in the whole event, the author expects us to see God working. The the neighborhood women say explicitly to Naomi, as she's holding this baby that Ruth has had with Boaz, and they say, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Very clear indication, God intervened. What a light of hope that there is. And then finally, we see the beautiful declaration of Ruth. And I won't go into this too much, but when Ruth says, your people shall be my people and your God will be my God, that's a covenantal statement. Even her clinging, the same word Ruth clung to is the, is the word that you found that you find in Genesis 2, when a man clings to his wife in covenantal marriage. And it's also the same word that Israel clings to God. So, so Naomi, uh, Ruth clings to Naomi, and says, your God will be my God. In short, what she's doing, she's making a covenantal change. She's transferring gods. She's fired her Moabite gods, and she's clinging to Yahweh. Now, let me just tell you how strange this is for a Moabite to do. The Moabites were the Old Testament chief of sinners. I already mentioned the moment when the Moabites seductively danced in front of Israel. I've mentioned last week how their whole line started because of the incestuous relationship with Lot and his daughters. We're not expecting Moabites to be in heaven at this point. This is the worst of the worst. If you want to know how bad they can get, they, they worship a God named Chemosh. And we find out later in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 26 and 27, that whenever a famine hits Moab or whenever something bad comes to Moab, guess what they start doing? Killing their kids. Pretty terrible, isn't it? Not really something that you would expect. You wouldn't expect any Moabites, no Kamosh worshipers, no child sacrificers to be given the grace of God. And yet, even here in the Old Testament, we see how God can change, transform a former chief of sinners to become a glorious trophy of salvation. My friends, What God did for Ruth the Moabite, who we will sit at the table with in heaven, he's doing again and again and again for all the people you wish we could nuke. Iranians coming to Jesus in mass groves. Iran is the place of the biggest revival that our century has seen. China, I can take you to hundreds of house churches where they worship better than you do. Russia, 829 church planters coming in, going back home to Russia. Bad life, absolutely. They fled it. They got saved. God called them in the ministry. And droves of 829 pastors now are going back to Russia to plant churches. In Stalingrad of all places. My friends, this is a dark world, and it's filled with dark people, and God can save wicked, evil, dark chiefs of sinners for his glory. There is no one beyond his salvation. And Ruth reminds us of that. My friends, do you see the rays of light in the dark, dark, dark chapter one of Ruth? And if God can give rays of light in something as bad as that, he can give rays of light in your own darkness. My time is up, but I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you the gospel in this. In no other place do we see the truth of light shining in the darkness of suffering than at the cross of Christ. Bitterness and sweetness all mingled together at one place. I mean, it's incredibly bitter. So bitter enough that Jesus knows better than Naomi did what it felt like for the Almighty to bring calamity upon him. He knew that his ruin, his death, his suffering, his torture, his calamity, didn't, he didn't just think it came from God. He knew it came from God. God did it. It was God's cup of wrath on his body. So bad that he has to say, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you've ever felt abandoned by God, you are in good company. The son of God himself knows what that feels like. And yet it's because of the cross that we have the empty tomb. It's because of the death of one innocent man that the many were made righteous. It's because of the broken, nasty body, the shed blood, the disgusting act of crucifixion. That we communion, that we take the Lord's Supper as a reminder that it is by that shed blood, that broken body, that splintery cross, those crown of thorns, that we sit at the table with our God.
1: God shines light in the darkness, always.
0: Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you take this poor explanation of your word and that you will make it to work, redemptive fruit in the lives of your people. God, help us to look for rays of light, to have the faith to look for rays of light. Help us to have faith to lift our eyes to the horizon where the dawn is beginning to shine, even in our darkness. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.